Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. Brand Manager. I'm here with Pat Weaver. Pat has represented the U.S. 16 times in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic competitions. His best international result was 16th place in the 2002 Olympic 15K Classic. Pat's a two-time Olympian and he retired after the 2006 season. In 2010, Pat was named head Nordic coach at the University of Vermont. In 2012, he led the Catamounts to their sixth NCAA championship. In 2011, he was named Eastern Intercollegiate Ski Association Coach of the Year. In 2019, he was named both EISA and NEMSA Coach of the Year. Pat lives in South Burlington, Vermont, with his wife, Corrine, and his two children, Silas and Kaisa. Thanks a lot for being here, Pat. It's great to connect with you, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Ian. It's, uh, it's great to be one of these interviewees. Uh, it's, I've, I've watched a bunch of them, and I'm honored to be uh, on your show. Thanks. Well, let's start off by, um, if you could please tell us where you were born and how and when you started skiing. Well, I was actually born in uh, Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, my parents were in the military and I spent the first uh, three years of my life um, in Germany. I, I don't remember any of it, but uh, um, um, from what my parents say, I, we lived quite the life while we were there. Um, after Germany, my parents moved back to the States. Um, they moved to Massachusetts, uh, Lenox, Mass. And um, I just started skiing, actually started skiing, alpine skiing as a kid, um, probably around five or six and didn't really start Nordic skiing until I was seven, eight, nine. Um, uh, I'm one of five and I think my parents realized that alpine skiing was going to be too expensive for a group of fives. They, uh, they picked up uh, Nordic skiing just on one weekend, just tried it out. They, they loved it and uh, uh, passed it on to us and um, never really raced actually as a child. Um, I think my first race was a maybe freshman in high school. So skiing wasn't something about racing. Skiing was more of a lifestyle choice for our family where we uh, spent time with friends, um, spent time with uh, you know, other families, just skiing on the weekends and making it more of a, um, yeah, making make it more of a lifestyle than a racing um, activity. How far is Lennox from the Southern Vermont border? Oh, probably about 45 minutes. I spent the greater part of my high school racing career driving up to prospect which is a little over an hour so it's uh yeah it's, it's about it's about halfway down down uh, north to south of massachusetts so during that era when you were skiing southern vermont was kind of the center of u.s skiing you had john caldwell bill coke tim dunkley jim galanis stan dunkley jim galanis tim caldwell you know the whole the whole crew uh bob gray did you ever was there any exposure there? Like obviously, there were racers, and you were just kicking around having fun. But was there any kind of effect there? Not really. You know, I obviously I knew who Bill Coke was. You know, in nineteen, yeah, I was you know, in nineteen eighty. I guess I remember those Olympics. You know, I remember Bill Coke being the one that won in nineteen seventy six. Um, but uh, you know, I was so far removed from racing that all those I, I had no idea who those names were at that time. So it was the uh, yeah. I was, I was definitely removed from the racing scene at that point. Hey, Pat, there's, there's something that you're touching that's affecting the microphone a little bit, making a yep. bit of a noise. Just okay. So, okay. Um, so the high school that I went to in Massachusetts, for the listeners, we both went to high school at the same time in Massachusetts. That was in the East and he was in the West. The high school I went to in Massachusetts had been Nordic 
ski state champions for something like the previous 15 years, maybe a lot more, I don't know. When I left uh, the school, the next winner, I believe Lennox won the state championships and you won the state championship title. Is that right? Might have been a couple of years after, but yeah, it was, it was pretty close. At any rate, I remember talking with my old teammates and they told me about it. And I said, who the heck is Pat Weaver? Which I never forgot because it was such a, a an ironic thing to say because the next at least 20 years, we saw a ton of each other and, and got to know each other very well. And of course, um, you know, you had a very successful ski career, but at that time I'd never heard of you and you had won and the team did well. So I, I thought that was kind of a funny story. Do you have any kind of perspective on that? I do, Ian, and, and, and you, you, you were actually part of it. Um, at some point in my high school career, you had graduated and I was racing, I believe it was up in Stratton, Vermont. And it was one of the, maybe a junior national qualifier or whatnot. And you probably started five minutes behind me or, you know, may, maybe it wasn't that far, but you had caught me in the race and I knew who you were and, and, and I did everything I could to stay with you. I probably stayed with you for the last 2K and it was, I was very impressed. I was actually able to stay with you. And when you finished and you turned around and you looked at me and you looked at you and, and you, I, I remember, I, I can still vividly remember you saying, who are you? Like, and I actually was honored because I think I had impressed you that I was able to keep up with you for the last two or three K. And, you know, I, I knew who you were. I knew that you skied in the Eastern part of the state, um, you know, before I did. Um, and and the, the thing that I probably picked up the most from you was if ski fans, if you don't remember Ian's um, uh, style back then, he, he started the sock over the suit look <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing and i started doing that i didn't really know how to do it but i ended up using two pairs of socks and just jamming my feet into the boots just so i could look like ian harvey and do the, the sock over the suit thing so so ian you were part of you influenced me in one way or another you know back then <laughs> i forgot about that the sock over the suit yeah so it was a long time too where i had a red bandana around my neck like a cowboy red bandana on top I do of my, remember that too. On top yeah. of my knicker suit. <laughs> yeah. No. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was thinking the other day when uh, when I when we decided to do this interview that both of us are from Massachusetts at about the same time and from from different regions within Massachusetts, which is interesting considering there haven't been very many elite skiers coming out of the state. I would, uh, at the uh, risk of excluding someone, I would say Kathy Maddock, you. Hans Johnstone, who was an Olympic uh, Nordic combined skier, and, and myself. Um, our school and area can pretty much, that is in Eastern Mass, we can pretty much all thank Dusty Johnstone and, uh, and some others, of course, for his efforts over a great many years in introducing young skiers to Nordic skiing and giving them a taste of what, great, what a great sport it is. Did you have a mentor from the Lennox area that inspired you and kind of got things going in that region? Yeah, I did actually. Um, his name was George Derry, and he was the he was the coach of um, the, of Lennox High School when I was there. Um, and he wasn't he wasn't a skier; he was just a local outdoor enthusiast, and um, I didn't really know much about skiing at all other than he liked skiing. And um, but he was a he was an incredible mentor not only when I was in high school, but you know all through my skiing career. And he actually just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, he lived into his 90s, but 
he um he helped me all along my ski career and and not not for skiing but just as you know as a person and um and I really you know looked up to him you know for, for all you know different aspects of life um but I do remember him as a coach um you know we had a huge team you know 40 40 kids on the team and he treated everyone equal it didn't matter if you were the best person on the team or the last person on the team everyone had a had a you know input on the team and you know he did everything possible to to give people the opportunity to be on that team and, and enjoy skiing and, and I you know I really you know looked up to that and you know and especially now later on in my life I you know I look back and see how he you know led the team and you know that's how I try to you know lead my team you know obviously it's in a different scenario but uh but he you know he was probably the one that you know definitely motivated me the most and you know you know both in high school and you know throughout my ski career cool so yeah. tell me you, you skied for UNH can you tell me about your college ski career yeah I mean I, you know, I skied for UNH um skied for Corey Schwartz who's still coaching there who's uh who's now a you know a friend and a mentor um you know we we almost I think we speak every day um um so you know I I had I had a great experience at UNH um uh you know I wasn't one of the top college athletes when I was there um I felt like I was achieving my goals that I set while I was there and and um Corey helped me continue to ski after college you know, he you know helped me prepare while I was in college and, and he helped motivate me to continue to ski afterwards so yeah I, I had a I love my time at UNH and working with Corey and the ski team there cool I remember I think it was your sophomore year at the end of the year you made NCAAs and did quite well in NCAAs yeah and Pretty certain you were by far the top UNH skier. I think you were, and I don't remember your two years after that because I wasn't skiing or I wasn't there. Yeah. But uh, how did the? Is that right? Was it your sophomore year? You went to uh, NCAA's at I think it was at Middlebury. Uh, was that your uh, I was actually in, in Stowe, Vermont. It was at Traps. Yeah. That was that was the one year, the one time I got I finished All American. Um, yeah. So that, possibly the year before that. Did you ever do NCAA's at Breadloaf? I thought you were there. I remember. Oh, um, it, was the EI, it was the EISA championships at Breadloaf. You had a darn good race there, I thought, because I did. Was I, 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 we overlapped one year, right? I think you were a senior when I was a freshman. I was never a senior in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your last year in college, I was a freshman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that could be. Um, my... I can't remember it, but I believe um, the NCAAs that I went to were Anchorage my freshman year. I believe it was Jackson my sophomore year and Middlebury, Breadloaf my junior year, but maybe Jackson and, and Breadloaf were switched. I can't remember. I think Jackson and Breadloaf might have been switched. No, no. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I think yeah. Jackson was my junior year. Anyway, um, I, I remember you had some pretty good races that one year. Um, you were, yeah. that's when I, I remember that's when I said, oh, Pat Weaver. I remember the name from high school, and I went, "Oh, okay, I know, I know who that guy is, and he's he's coming along, you know." Yeah, I, I would say it's my sophomore year was probably my breakthrough year for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's when I had my. Um, I remember, I, I joke about it with Joe Galanis. Like, I never quite beat him, but I got really close my sophomore year, and that was another one of the. You know, I knew Joe, you know, just you know from seeing what he he'd done in his career, and um, and I remember being like finishing right behind him one race and. Couldn't quite believe I actually could, you know, 
do that. So, yeah. Especially Joel, because he was a phenomenal junior. Of course, he did well as a senior, too. But as a junior, he was phenomenal. Yep. So he was uh, very much a legend in the East as a sure. junior. He was just a phenomenal junior. So um, maybe you want to mention something about um, being assistant coach at UNH with Corey for the couple of years after you graduated? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I spent my fifth, fifth year there. I, it took me five years to graduate from UNH. And, and I, my fifth year there, I did race as well as help Corey out as, as, as the assistant coach, um, um, which that was at the time challenging to, you know, I was so young and basically my teammates the year before, all of a sudden I was coaching them. So it was kind of a little bit of an awkward, awkward situation. But, but uh, you know, early on, I did feel that coaching actually helped my skiing. Um, and I, you know, I, and I encourage any athlete out there to give a technique lesson, you know, because you, you never quite, um, if someone's telling you to do something all the time, sometimes it just never gets absorbed. But if you're put in a position to actually give that technique lesson, all of a sudden you start thinking about things differently and, and it does help, you know, with your technique or, or even with your training or whatnot. So, you know, early on, I did learn that, you know, it helps to, to teach for you to learn. So, um. Um, yeah, and then I did my UNH is where I met my wife, um, Corrine, um, and that was a couple years afterwards. Uh, I did go back, and Corrine was actually the assistant coach for a couple years, and I did help Corrine and Corey with the team when I was around as well. So it's a, it was, you know, I, I felt like I got so much out of being at UNH. It just felt good to give back to the to the team, you know, and and I I would often go back there even when I wasn't coaching. I would just show up for a weekend and help Corey wax or test skis or just be with the team, which uh, I, I got a lot out of that myself. So. so I have a question for you. You have a perspective that I also share that isn't that common nowadays. And that is when you graduated from college, the U.S. ski team had not yet, or USSA had not yet switched to endorsing a club based system. Yep. So nowadays when someone graduates from college and they want to pursue elite ski racing, they go to one of the elite clubs in the country and get good coaching, good support. They have a training group, WAC support, et cetera. But at that time, for the most part, there were some clubs, but they weren't necessarily elite clubs. And for the most part, the elite athletes were invited to U.S. ski team training camps. Yep. If you were good enough, you were invited to these camps, either regional camps or national camps. And they, they tried to make it a centralized system. Um, and so... I think this, you'll have an interesting perspective on this. So when you graduated, the club system was not really in place at all. No. Most elite skiers pretty much trained on their own and then went to camps. I know you were with XC Oregon for a while, but for the most part, can you talk about who you trained with and how you got to the World Cup level? Yeah, so when I, when I graduated from college, um, I don't know if you remember this, but they, they did have a U.S. At the at the Olympic training centers, they had a like a training group, um, and I did go to Marquette for a, basically a year. Um, John Estel was the coach there, um, and that only lasted one year. So I was, um, you know, lucky enough to be in a position where I was invited to do that for the for the year. And I do remember graduating from college, and just I knew I wanted to ski, but I, I was lost. I had no idea like how was I going to do this and. I remember going to my local shop and having to buy wax and, you know, I'd never bought wax, you know, you know, you do get that support through, you know, your college team. Um, so I was 
lucky enough to be able to be part of this group for a year um, that did kind of help me get me on my feet. Um, yeah, uh, it did only last a year. And, and then the next year I did train just by myself at home in Lenox, um, which was, I felt the most affordable way to do it. it you know, it's a good place to be. And I could live at home and I did work, you know, I waited tables that helped get me by. Um, and that year um, is when I, I, I would say I had my breakthrough year out of college and raced well enough to be named to the national team. And then from there, um, um, that's when the club system started and they, they wanted you to be, to name a club. Or, or, and, and that's where I, 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 I was in Bend, Oregon enough just from camps, early season camps, and then I decided that Bend would be a good place to be. And, and um, originally it started with MBSCF. Um, we were a member of that club. And then um, XE Oregon came along and John Downing, um, I believe it was myself and Justin Wadsworth were the first you know, big name skiers to be part of that. And, um, but again, it was, we didn't, the, it was just at then the clubs weren't really that organized and we were just naming ourselves at a club. Um, and it's not like it is today where, you know, they have, you know, full teams and full-time coaches and they travel together and it was um yeah it was just it was the it was this it was it literally was the start but i mean it really did evolve into something which i think is really great for this country and 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 i think it's one of the reasons why we're having more success now um athletes have a place to be much more focused and if an athlete is motivated and focused they have the opportunities to help them get there where i feel back when we were there we were still very motivated and focused, but we didn't have those daily opportunities to have a coach and, and that support to travel to races and whatnot. So it's a, I think it's really great to see. And It's remarkable. If, if you look at back then, I had the same experience, you know, I left college and then I was just training my own. There a whole bunch of talented athletes are some of our countries, not only fastest athletes, but our best up and coming athletes. I was in that so-called Project 92 team, which is one of the U.S. team levels, named along with like Justin Wadsworth and Luke Bowen Center and so on. And we, I was completely training men. I was invited to some camps, but I never went to them. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I was working and training and, you know, it cost, they don't send you to the camps. You know, it costs money to do all that stuff. So um, that's an interesting, I think it had to have had a huge impact, even though we kind of made it through. But if you compare the support and the expertise that we were gaining compared to in this day and age where you have really truly excellent professional coaches guiding you and you have mentors to follow around, the yep. difference is dramatic compared to what we went through compared to what's going on today. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and it, and it not only helps the top level athletes too, it, it helps for development as well. I mean, when you have a top level athlete training in the, club um that's going to rub off onto the younger athletes in the club and it's um you know it's you know we're not i don't think we're at we're i mean our country's so big it's really hard to to really benefit from all the clubs you know all the time you know i mean i, I see what happens in norway or norway does with those clubs and it's you know I, you know I work with a lot of norwegian athletes just here at university of vermont and it's i mean it's really cool to to, to you know, they, you know, they get to go home and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the same club with, you know, this person or that person. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, 
I can see how motivating it is for these athletes to, you know, to be in a club with an Olympic champion. And um, that's yeah, so. I want to I want to delve into a little bit more, but I want to use myself as an example. When I graduated from high school, I won World Junior Team Trials by seven percent. I was mm -hmm. by far the top junior in the country. I did decently throughout that winter. Uh, top finish in World Juniors, minute minute 30 out, I think, in about 40th place. Shell shock. I thought I had the worst race of my life, you know, but I was somehow still our top finisher and so on. Then I went to a different program. I'm not going to talk about coaches or specifics. I went to a different program, and I was shocked to find out that no one did any strength whatsoever, and no one double pulled. I was the only person in the entire program who would go to the gym sometimes. I was the only person in the entire program who would even do a double pull workout. And the one reason why I was faster is because I did these types of workouts, you know? And I wanna contrast that with, for example, you having Ben Ogden as an athlete coming in as a freshman. Mm -hmm. He was as competitive as I was, you know, one of the top juniors in the country, et cetera, et cetera. But this kid is strong as heck. He's got superb, great technique. He's got a great training base. He's been training at a high level. And I think that's directly related to the fact that he was in a club-based system with superb support. So you as a college coach, you're getting a very developed product, you know, coming in as compared to, you know, some years ago. There's a huge contrast, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, I mean, just on the recruiting side of things, you know, I, I do, I do, I really do like to develop U.S. athletes and, and give them the opportunity here at UVM. But I, but I also do value and, and do support international athletes as well, because um, I do think they, they bring um, just something else to the team. And especially when you're getting, getting them from all around, you know, the world, you know, everyone has a different perspective of how to train. And, and, I, and I, I use, you know, their um, experiences to help us develop our team as well. Um, but with that being said, it is harder and harder to recruit faster international skiers compared to our top domestic skiers. You know, when you're, when you're, when you have to go out and try to out recruit a Ben Ogden or a Catherine Ogden or a Sophia Lockley or a Novi McCabe, you know, these people are, you know, they're finishing top 10 of world juniors. And a lot of these top juniors that are beating them are not going to come to school over here you know, they're going to stay in their pipeline because they're on direct track to be on their national team. So it's, um, it's, uh, it, I, it is very impressive at how much more prepared our athletes are, our athletes are at a younger age now compared to at least I was when I went to college. I mean, I, I, the level of training that I was during my college career is probably below the base level of what I expect of my team now, which is, um, yeah, which I, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's quite impressive. No question. I have a question I was going to ask you later, but since you brought that up, I'll ask you now. It seems to me that many more Americans are winning in the college circuit now compared to back when you and I were competing yep. uh, on the college circuit. So do we have slower imported skiers or are the Americans much faster or is it a combination? For example, I remember when I was in college, Hannah Krogstad went to UVM. She was the world junior champion. Yeah. Her brother Snuda was also very good. I mean, the, the recruits were 
some of the inter best international juniors there were, period. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the, the imports are slower and we're faster or if it's a, you know, one or the other. I, I, I do think the Americans are getting, we're just getting faster. You know, just, we're just, I mean, just look at, just look at the world junior results for the past couple of years. I mean, yeah, that wasn't happening back when we were skiing and, um, you know, and, and so I, I yeah, I, I just do think it's, it's a higher quality, you know, maybe we're just going through a little wave right now with just some good talent that's all come up through at once, but I don't think so. I just, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, uh, our juniors are, our juniors are better now. And, um, um, yeah. I think for sure our juniors are better. My question is, are imports at the level that they were internationally before? It seems like they're not to me. I don't know. I mean, if you look at their fist points, I mean, maybe their, their, their fist points do get um, escalated over here because they're just racing it. But it's, uh, there's still some pretty fast international people that do come over here. It's, it's, um, and may, maybe it wasn't quite at the level as it was back then. But again, it's hard to say because maybe we weren't, the Americans weren't very good back then. But that, yeah, I, it's yeah, it's it's a, it's a good question. I'm not, you know, I'm not really not really sure. It's a, um, sure. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't, yeah, I I don't, yeah, don't have the answer to that. But it's a, um, other than I do think I do, I do think the Americans are getting faster. So. Okay, so here's a here's a changing change the topic. When you were on the U.S. ski team, and you were named the U.S. ski team some years, and you weren't named some years, does that sound right? I I can't remember actually. I was on the team from. 95 slash 96 through 2000, I believe. I think it was five years. And then I was not named for a couple of years. And then I, I made the 2002 Olympic team on my own. Like I, I wasn't a member of the national team. Then. Right. So, and, and that was the, probably the top of your abilities, your peak of your career. So yeah, I would say so. So you were, that's what I'm saying. So when you were in the U.S. ski team or when you weren't on the U.S. ski team, Yep. You were clearly one of the top few skiers in the country for many years. We as a country during that period of time competed in very few World Cups. As I mentioned before, you only have 16 international you know, World Cup, World Championship, Olympic starts. That's very few yep. for someone of, your, of the length of your career. Someone today, you have like 150 or something. Yeah. Very few starts. Yep. So we as a country participated in very few World Cups. We had nobody in the red group and we had no money. And I think the, the perception among some of our USSA leaders was we also had no potential for yeah. international results. Yeah. Obviously some of that had to do with doping uh, because the 90s and early 2000s, but the 90s I think was the, the peak of the, the worst disadvantage for clean athletes. But having it said that, it made for some really competitive domestic racing. I remember some you know super tour type events uh, it was basically U.S. national championships every weekend. Yeah. Clearly, we had some fast skiers, and and it showed itself in the 2001 pre-Olympic World Cup results as well as in the 2002 Olympics. We yeah. had we had fantastic results, fantastic results. Can you talk first off about the distinct difference in results that we had racing in Europe compared to at home? Because the, the home field advantage, and you look at the results, it's just a complete contrast. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I do think that's what's helping the U.S. success now is they are 
turning Europe into more of their home and, and you know they're over there for so long and and I know that it can't be easy for those athletes and you know for some of them who are getting a little older so you know they're, they're starting to have families or whatnot but but they are um yeah I mean they're treating Europe as their home like when when they're over in the winter over the, you know for the, and I think that makes that makes a big difference just uh, not having to travel across the pond and hop off a plane and try to perform at your best level, you know, dealing with, um, you, know, you know, whatever, you know, jet lag and different food and ho different hotels. I mean, it's really, really hard to do that, um, you know, week in and week out or, or, or just, you know, just going over for, for one trip for three weeks. It used to be common wisdom on the U.S. ski team was that the, they would send some people over there and then they would peak at about three weeks. So the first week, they're still jet lagged and a little tired and blah, blah, blah. The second week, they do better. The third week, they would peak. And then after that, it would go downhill because they would get homesick or, or stale. Yeah. And, and it's interesting if you, you know, our US key team, we, a lot of them have a home base in either Seyfeld or Davos. And they go to work races and they come back in a little training camp there and they go back and so on. And that's one way that's of managing this. It's interesting. If I look at the Nordic combined team, though, They've also had very good results for years, and they go over generally three times a year. They come back. In, when, we, when our athletes would go to Seyfeld or Davos, they come back to Utah or wherever they live. A lot of them are from, live in Utah, and they yeah. train for a couple of weeks real hard, and then they fly back again. And, and for example, the, the Fletcher brothers talk, used to talk to me about that all the time, and they'd have it down to a science, the actual yeah. travel part, you know, the, how they get in the plane, if they take sleeping pills, what flight they take, how they manage the flight. And they've got it down to a science where yep. it's almost no disruption at all. So it's interesting to see the contrast. Sure. But, but to bring this up, um, one other aspect of this that I think that you're also sensitive to and you might have enjoyed is, is not only do we do better in the United States, for example, or Canada compared to how we do in Europe because we have less disruptions. But what I enjoy seeing is when the Europeans come to North America they're struggling. Half of them get sick. They're complaining about the dry climate and they get upper respiratory infections. Yeah. They're struggling with the time change and the food. And um, I know uh, schadenfreude, you know, that word isn't uh, necessarily a good thing, but it feels good to see them dealing with that. And, and you know what I'm talking about. That definitely plays a role, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that, I think that contributed to our success in 2002 and, and, and our success in 2002 is nothing compared to what we're experiencing now on the World Cup level. But in 2002, those results were pretty exciting for us given we hadn't had that type of excitement at an Olympic Games in a long time. But it was, it definitely had a lot to do with, we didn't have to drive or we didn't have to fly, you know, six time zones to get there. Or, you know, we were eating food that we were used to or, you know the whole you know yeah it, it was home basically you know and, and that, that yeah it, um and when you're home and someone else is coming over it, it makes a big difference because you know they're, they're experiencing what we have to experience all the time um so yeah it's a i would there's no doubt if we had more competitions in north america that we would have more success the only thing i would say is they would probably figure it out more and it would be easier for them if there was more races over here too so but <laughs> So, but just for the motivation or the the momentum, I mean, I don't. Yeah, it, if if you can if you can have an opportunity to overperform your ability as an athlete, that's gonna 
incentivize you to know and give you confidence and know that you can do that more and more. And, and until you get that little flavor of success, it's, it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to get that when you have, when you're dealing with so much other things, you know, like with the travel and food time zone or whatnot. Hey, you were just playing with the mic thing again, just so you know. It's actually, it might be my cat who's like. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, hey, so shoot. I want to talk about 2002 because there's an, an aspect of this. You mentioned that you didn't think our results were that great in 2002, but I think well, it was, it was very, on the men's side, I mean, Nina Kempel had a decent race, but on the men's side, it was really, really good. Yeah. When I say they were good, I mean, no, they were, but compared to what we're seeing today, especially on the women's side, like what the U S women are doing, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, that, you know, our results would have been like eh, an average day for them now. So, but, but, but just, no, it was that whole experience. That was, it was incredibly exciting and motivating to be part of that team just to see those, you know, just, it was just mini breakthroughs and, and not only for the U S but, you know, you know, Becky Scott, you know, you know, she was, we were very good friends with her and, you know, fiance to Justin Wadsworth. And, you know, so just seeing her success too, that helped us as well. So it's, uh, um, so it was, no, it was, um, I, you know, and I often listen to Keegan Randall and her talks and, and I, I love hearing her, you know, her experiences at, at Salt Lake. And she's off, often referring to, you know, the results that we had there as a kind of a little bit of a motivation for her and, and kind of like, that's kind of where she got started and started pursuing her aspirations of winning a medal. And yeah, so it's a, no, I think, it, I think a lot happened and started a lot, a lot started from 2002 in Salt Lake. Yeah. So the, this is something I think a lot of people don't know this next part and it's interesting. So I, I think there's a, You've seen some relay teams like Austria, for example, in the 90s and early 2000s, where they had four racers that were really, really good, yep. and they would rarely win World Cups, but it fell off a lot to their fifth until their doping program caught up, and they, they got a little bit more depth. Um, but in the United States, and, and that's kind of a, you generally have to have a whole lot of depth to, to kind of push everyone up to have a fantastic relay team. Yeah. And that's what happened in 2002. And that's something that I think people don't realize the depth that we had on the men's side. Sure. So you finished 16th place in the 15 K classic race as a second American. John Bauer was eight, I believe in that race. Yeah. Um, you were 16th place. If you look at Olympic results in the history of, of men's Olympics in the United States for Nordic skiing, I'm thinking you're looking at Bill Coke silver, Bill Coke sixth place, John Bauer, eighth place. That might be our fourth best result yep. in history for an individual. I don't know if you've looked at that. Despite this excellent result, oh, uh, Scott Patterson was 11th in Holman Colon in the last, uh, in, the, in the 50K last, um, last Olympics. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, that's a, a fantastic result. Despite this, which happened before the relay, despite this result, you were not selected to ski in the relay. Yeah. One of the best results we've had as a country in history. Bauer was, uh, he raced and he was eighth in the individual race. Chris Freeman was 15. Justin Wadsworth, I don't remember what it was in the Olympics, but in the pre-Olympic World Cup, he was eighth. So he had yeah. some great results. And of course, Carl Swenson had some great results. I remember he was fifth in world championships shortly afterwards. Sure. 
and the, the relay team finished fifth place just behind Austria. That's a fantastic relay. But the point is, we had depth of our squad, which was phenomenal. Sure. Andrew Johnson, for example, was also quite good at the time. Normally, a 16th place in a, in a distance race at the Olympics would obviously qualify for the relay. You'd probably be there, our most important person in the relay. What were your thoughts at the time, and perhaps now looking back at that relay and not being selected for it? Um, yeah, I, I, I felt pretty fortunate to be, be part of the 2002 Olympic team, just in general. Um, you know, I was one of the older guys. You know, I wasn't on the national team. I kind of clawed my way back and somehow got on that team. So I And I remember the qualifying was really close. It was the pursuit in Bozeman, and you finished basically exactly where you needed to be in order to make the team. It was super, super tight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I was incredibly grateful to actually have the opportunity to be on it. And, 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 and my part of the team was I was only going to be there for the 50K, which is the last race. So, and I was even told, uh, why don't you just stay and train in Sun Valley and come down for the 50K? So, and I was like, nah, I'm, I'm going to the Olympics. And, and I remember, I mean, I helped in the 30K, I helped the, I fed the athletes, you know, some of my teammates. And um, I mean, I just wanted to be there and, and just be supportive. And I was happy to be part of the team. And, and even that, you know, I, I wasn't even scheduled to race the 15K Classic. And I was training right through and I was only going to do the 50K. And, and literally two days before the 15K Classic, someone got sick and I had the, they came to me and said, Hey, do you want to race? And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. I would, I'd love to race. And so, I mean, my, my overall just like just general feeling of being at the Olympics, I was just happy to be there and, and happy to represent. So, um, you know, and I think that contributed to some of my success in that one race. It was, you know, I had absolutely no pressure and um, I just kind of went out and did what I love to do. And I happened to be in really good shape for some reason, I just was peaking at right at, I was right at the right time. Um, so like when they, when they did come to name the Olympic team, I, you know, I, I don't remember ever feeling any remorse of not being on it or grudging anyone for not being on it. The relay. You know, yeah, the relay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Chris Freeman was an up and coming star, you know, Carl Swenson had some outstanding results. Justin Wadsworth had the name and proved himself that he could ski with the top. And then of course, John Bauer, unbelievably talented and so I mean I I totally got why I wasn't named to the team um you know I had the race of my life and it was one race and these other guys had you know had proven themselves more in the past and but with that being said too watching that race and just being out there cheering those guys on I definitely felt I had a little piece of that fifth place and um it was exciting for sure yeah um absolutely yeah I mean there are days that I you know, every once in a while, I think back like, oh man, if I were on that classic leg, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would have done any better than those guys. I mean, it was just, uh, it would have been exciting, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I have no you know, hard feelings about that. It was just, yeah, it was, it was I great. Didn't think you did. I didn't think you did, but it's also an interesting perspective that you did so well and you weren't selected, which shows, it says a ton about the strength of our squad and it makes it less of a surprise that they actually did so well. Sure. Yeah, I, I do remember one of one of the, I think Norwegian coaches actually mentioned something about they were like, man, if the U.S. men's had a six-person relay team, if it was six legs, they were like they would be hard to beat. Like it was just you know the other 
other people noticed that as well. I mean, other countries, like other good countries. So who was the sixth guy? Was it AJ or was it Lars Flora? It would be. It would have been AJ. I mean, AJ when he in the thirty k, I think he finished twentieth, twenty first, twenty second, which was, I believe, one of the best finishes to date. You know, at the, at, the, at the games. You know, after that race, you know, before John and I and. Yeah had you know on the 15k so yep, it was, uh, i remember that and he also did really well in the 2001 race he did yeah yeah, yeah so i think it was in the 20s low 20s also yep so i mean aj aj and i were actually rooming together at the olympics and we had our loft or whatever we didn't even actually have a real room but i do remember yeah i was just yeah i mean we yeah i, I do remember talking like oh we could be on that too but like yeah it was uh, at least personally i was like again i was just happy to be there and happy to support as well so but once again we're talking about a men's team with six guys who any one of which could have contributed to that fifth place yeah that's some amazing depth that few countries have that's yeah. Cool. And, yeah and interestingly enough it came after a period of very little i'm all about international competition i think you know if you're not competitive in the world cup you should go to the alpen cup the opa cup and, and what they call it nowadays yeah um but we had some really good domestic competitions back then. Super competitive. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. So. Obviously it, it brought something. Sure. Okay. Let me, let me ask you a difficult question. This is a, an unpopular topic and you're the only person out of all the interviews I've really asked this straight out to. So um, the 2001 world championships and the 2002 Olympic games were both rocked by doping scandals that hit the highest levels of the sport. Most of us athletes at the time knew this was going on anyway, but to have so many favorites get nailed by new doping tests that were kind of surprises, you know, opened many eyes. Looking back, we know that our careers, you and I, were during the time with the worst doping abuses during the 90s. Would you like to reflect on how this was, knowing that you might just be one of a small percentage of clean athletes in a World Cup event at the time? Did this bother you and did it affect your motivation or morale ever? Um, to answer your latest, the, the, you know, did it affect my motivation and morale? No, it definitely did not. I mean, I, I was doing, I was racing because I loved to race and I loved to train. Um, and, and, you know, it, no, so that, it was frustrating to see and compete against who we thought were dopers at the time, but it didn't really, at the time, it didn't really affect, you know, my motivation and morale. Thinking back at it, you know, if, if it was 100% clean, you know, how much better would we have done? You know, I, I often do feel a little robbed. That I, I, I'm gonna, I, I would never have won a, a gold medal or whatever, but we, we, I would have been more competitive, and, you know, and getting in the top 20 or top 15 would have been more realistic and part of our lives. Um, when, when, like, when we scored a World Cup point, we were just like, woo, like, like high fives all around. And, um, and I think that would have changed it a little bit. You know, it just, we would have, it, it, you know, it, it was hard going over to the World Cup or just seeing your teammates go over to the World Cup and getting your butt kicked. And, and you know, it just, we were better skiers than that. And, and we knew it, but, you know, when, you know, people looking at the results were just kind of shaking their head like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's a, uh, so, so you know, that part was hard, you know, just to kind of justify that. But, um, 
as far as morale and whatnot, no. I mean, I, I mean, I still love to train and love to be a professional skier, and you know, that's what kind of kept me going. So, so I would say my answer to that would be identical to yours. I mm -hmm. think, and perhaps that was an essential attitude at the time. Like, if I were to race, I raced a lot of races cross country, but also biathlon in Europe, and I would say I learned quickly that I was not a, a contender. Yeah, and. And so I learned to get my enjoyment from other sources, the lifestyle, the fitness, the, you know, when I raced in the United States, I was always a contender, you know, yeah. it was a different, a different paradigm. And I knew that uh, firsthand, even in many cases, the, I knew firsthand of many of the people that I was competing against firsthand, I knew for a fact that they were completely abusing, you know, doping, but yeah. I didn't actually look down at them necessarily because at the time, I think culturally, if things aren't as clear, we're not as clear as they are today either. You know, it wasn't a moral issue. I had a French coach once kind of yell at me and one of my teammates who were wondering about who was doping. He turned around and he yelled at us and said, you guys are basically, you guys, I'm paraphrasing, but you guys are idiots. How would you not go to a ski race without doping? It's so unprofessional. You know, it wasn't a moral issue. Yeah. Now I think it is a moral issue for the most part, you know, yeah. but at the time, you know, I didn't look at these people differently. I didn't look at them, look down at them. It was just the way the world was. And did you ever have those thoughts as well? Um, you know, I, I do remember at the Olympic, I mean, I, I, I had had the opportunity to watch that 30 K, the one that Muleg won um, um, in Salt Lake, I was, you know, right on the sidelines, you know, right on the trail watching. And I, I do remember being like kind of shaking my head and just being like, this is ridiculous watching Muleg, you know, ski away from the rest of the world. And he essentially made like Thomas Allsgaard or Per Allison look like a, you know, no offense to a JV high school skier, but they looked, they, they looked like they didn't know what they were doing out there skiing. And, and I, 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 that was the one time I do remember getting a little bit, you know, not a little, pretty frustrated and just kind of shaking my head about it. But I couldn't really say anything because I'd be like a poor sport or like, ah, you know, just an excuse or whatnot, you know. But when Becky Scott came out and made her statement after winning what should have been the gold medal, won her a bronze medal, when she came out and said it, you know, I felt like she was in a perfect position to point the finger and and not be ashamed of saying you're a cheater. I'm not. And, and uh, I, I thought that was awesome when she did that. Cause I think that really, you know, began the, you know, just a, it just began like calling people out and, and, and actually make it. So, you know, you are cheating when you're doping and not part of the system. And, um, but yeah, so it's a, that just the whole, I think in Salt Lake, you know, a lot did change with, you know, Becky making that statement. And I think, I think, you know, the general, uh, the frustration was growing amongst the ski world, you know, watching Muleg and uh, Verpalu and the Austrians and, you know, you know, it's just, it was, it was becoming obvious, like stuff that we knew for years was coming out and it was, you know, it was, it was good to see. Let me go on record by saying the Germans as well, they weren't caught, but they were the best in the world. And as soon as things cleaned up by the, uh, over there, they were relegated to at best, at best, just behind the United States. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, while we're talking about this, let me just throw something out there because I never actually said this in public. That winter, 
in December, there was a World Cup in Seyfeld. Yeah. And in that World Cup in Seyfeld, Egorova tested positive. And there were 10 athletes that tested positive in Seyfeld. Yeah. But only um, one name was given, and that was Egorova. But the other nine were not given. But Bank Saltin, who was running the testing program, went on record in Germany in the newspaper printed saying 10 athletes tested positive in Seyfeld at that event where they tested. And they were, they were Olympic medalists, like top, top athletes. 10 of them tested positive. And yeah. I got wind of this, and I, saw, I read the newspaper articles in German. They weren't in the United States at all. And then I, I had read further follow-ups with Bank Saltin, who was doing the testing. And I emailed Sarah Lewis, who was the FIS general secretary, a number of times, being a pain in the butt. Yeah. And I kept asking about those other nine names. And I also was asking about Egorova. And as it turned out, none of those other nine names ever came out, ever. And Egorova, that's one of the reasons why there was disqualification in Salt Lake, because she was not allowed, she was deemed she should never have started in Salt Lake. Yeah. Jeez. Which is one reason why this happened, because she should have been disqualified. She was never, she never should have started. And there yeah. were other positives, as it turns out, were Lazutina and Danilova and others. Yeah. In, that all happened in Seyfeld, and the fist buried it. And Sarah Lewis was the agent, the person who was just fired as a general secretary for FIS. She was yeah. the one who buried it. And, and I was actively harassing her and using Bing Saltine, doing the cut and paste of all the articles. Yeah. And it was interesting how that then panned out later with Becky Scott's gold. Yeah. But yeah. I saw that one coming the entire time because I had some insider information in Europe and I was reading the European newspapers. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. bottom line is to talk about doping, especially at the time, was purely counterproductive. It would affect your morale. It didn't yeah. do you any good whatsoever. And it made you look like a chump. So yeah, that was, you know, I mean, that, 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 I remember, yeah, just watching Muleg and, 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 you know, something inside me saying, I wish I could say more and just like make a statement. And yeah, I just like, yeah, I didn't. And luckily we had Becky to do it. So yeah, but the interesting example with Muleg, do you remember who he left behind? In the race? Yeah, in the 30K? On yeah. the last hill in her motel? In other words, yeah. who was second and third? Dopers. <laughs> yeah. That's the, my yeah. point. The yeah. whole darn thing was dopers. It was dopers leaving dopers, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was incredible. Yeah, Mulek, I, it was um, Christian Hoffman was second, I think, and Bobinoff yeah. was third. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, know. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a reason why I don't look into it more because it would frustrate me more. And, and it's not that different from looking at Tour de France results in the late 90s. You know, yeah. later, looking back, it's like, holy crap. There's no yeah. one in the top 15, you know? It's kind of like that, looking at the results in the 90s and early 2000s. But again, it's counterproductive. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't help anybody at the time. But looking back, it's an education. I think as bad as, as much as doping there still is in the circuit, we're way better off now than we were then. No question. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think so too. But, you know, it's still, it's still there. But it's, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's probably not as prevalent as it was. So let, let's change the subject to something far more positive and more inspiring. Uh, can you tell us about a race from any time in your career that was especially memorable for you? You've already, you've already, you've already given the, I hung on to Ian Harvey as a junior for the last two Ks. I know that was a big deal. So let's leave that one out though. Cause you already covered it. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I can't leave, I, I can't, I'll never forget obviously the 15 K at the Olympics. I mean, that was, yeah. Being able to, you know, when I was in Japan, I went to the Olympics in Japan and, 
and there was very few people watching that race. And I remember stepping to the line at the Olympics in Japan and being like, this is the Olympics. Like it just didn't seem like a big race. Cause it was just weren't very many people watching. And I know, it just, it just didn't seem very Olympic. Um, <laughs> um, but stepping to the, stepping to the line in Salt Lake city and, and having them announce your name. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of people watching that race. That was, um, that was a pretty special feeling. And, uh, you know, just that whole race of, you know, going out and, and I knew I was having a decent race and then, but just seeing the coaches excitement when we were coming by giving splits, it was, uh, you know, the whole race was just so, it, it was very motivating. You know, I obviously never forget that. Um, you know, the other races, you know, when I was an athlete, I, I, I never overachieved by setting like goals that I wasn't going to be able to, I, I didn't, or I always set realistic goals. So, you know, and, and I think sometimes setting realistic goals allows you to achieve goals along the way and, you know, winning mass state championships. I always remember that or, or getting all American at college. You know, I'll always remember that race or winning my first national title and you know, I always remember that race. So, you know, there's you know a bunch of smaller races all along, all along the way that, you know, stick out, but you know, Olympics 15 K, you know, that, that definitely is probably the highlight of, you know, the races that I've had. How many national titles did you win? Um, two, just two, yeah. I'm asking because I did, a, I looked you up on the FIS website. Yeah. I don't, it didn't have any top threes, I think. No, there was. Yeah, I'm not there's... saying it's not true. Sometimes yeah. the FIS website, you know, when you get back a few years, it's yeah. not, it's not up to date, which is why I didn't mention that you were a national champion, but I swore you were. Can you can you just tell me what what you won, please? Um, I won the 50k in Rumford, Maine, when there was probably eight finishers. It was pouring rain, and it was the last race, and everybody left. So that was the disappearing snow race. One of them. Probably, yeah, yeah. Like at um, the start, there was enough snow, and then by the time the last finisher crossed the line, the race was over because there was no snow anyway. <laughs> it, was, it was getting there, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I also won the 30k skate race in '98. The, the the 98 Olympic year in Bend, Oregon. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks. I'm no. sorry for not uh, introducing you as, as having had won those races, but there no was worries. no evidence on the internet of you having had won them. So I couldn't, I, I, I swore you had won some, but I even I looked it up. Yeah, I won 20 of them. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ben Ogden's one of your skiers and looking back, it seems to me that some of these young skiers like Ben and Gus Shoemaker, Luke Yeager, Johnny, there's some, we have some really young me, uh, junior men and women who are successful. I'm not sure, but it seems to me that aerobically, they're not that different than let's say how I was when I was a, a, an older junior, yep. but strength wise, they're so much stronger than I ever was at that age or maybe any, any time in my career. Can you yep. talk about that and what, what might be going on there? You mean strength, just like raw, like? Well, specific strength. Like if you watch Ben Ogden ski, I was talking with someone the other day, I think it might've been David Norris. And he was behind Ben in a race or racing with Ben in a race. And he was amazed that Ben was bending the shafts on his pole with every pole plant. Yeah. He's, that kid is strong. Yeah. And um, most junior age skiers, you know, um, they don't have the strength to do that, not even close. And this is not even a sprint race. This is an you know in a distance race. Yeah, we're just much stronger than any juniors we've ever had. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, I mean, I can't speak for, you know, Luke or Gus or Johnny, you know, on, on what they're doing, but, you know, I, mean, I obviously know Ben fairly well, having worked with him for my third year. You know, Ben, yeah, Ben is, you know, he is just a naturally strong guy. I think Ben is strong because he's done a lot of work, like physical labor work, you know, carpentry, farming or whatnot. And, um, and he still likes to do that type of stuff. And, you know, he often kind of, you know, he doesn't train as much as some of those other guys, but he also does still do a lot of physical labor, which for strength wise, I think is just as good as going to the weight room sometimes. And, and he's doing a lot of it too. So I think Ben is that strong because, you know, he's training and he's doing the physical labor as well. Um, and he's been, he probably started that as a young age and that's why he's, it's naturally for him. It's natural for him to continue to do physical labor while he trains as hard as he does. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, I think that, that probably contributes to Ben's strength. I and mean, like I said, I can't, I can't really speak for the other guys. Last spring, I saw a video of him pulling himself up a rope using only his arms yeah. with his legs in an L position. Yeah. Going up and down this rope. That is so hard. Sure. Yeah. It is yeah. so hard to do. I, I would say, you know, when I was my best ever, in a double pole, not a sprint double pole, in a distance double pole, I was probably as strong as anyone in the country. Yeah. I could never have done that. Yeah. In my entire career, I could never have done that. I, yeah. I got good at climbing ropes in the Marine Corps, but doing that where you have your body in an L position and you're climbing up and down a rope just using your arms, and it wasn't a big, one of the Marine Corps ropes, they're huge, thick ropes that you get really good grip on. This yeah. wasn't one. It was like a thick climbing rope with some knots in it, but that kid is strong. And he's the kind of strong that gymnasts get, but gymnasts are built like gymnasts, you know, small, yeah. light bodies. Ben's yeah. built like an endurance athlete. Sure. Yeah. That's, that, I, I understand what you're saying about manual labor, but that kind of strength doesn't happen by, by pounding hammers and hay, throwing around hay bales. I mean, yeah. that's some specific strength that's out of this world. Yeah, you know, now that you bring that up, you know, I, I do remember, you know, this whole double pole, you know, the athletes, you know, the amount that they're double poling or when they're skating, you know, you know the amount that they V2 – you know, both double pole and V2 just takes so much upper body strength, obviously. Um, you know, I remember, you know, back when I was on the national team, I, I tried to double pull a race out in West Yellowstone. You know, one, the one, the one that goes around the rendezvous or the deja vu loop. You know, and, and I got killed. Like, I just, you know, and I was a pretty fit, strong athlete, you know, back in the day. And I, I suffered trying to double pull around that. What these athletes do today as far as what they're capable of doing double pulling and just their, their ability to V2 up a hill. It, it is, it's way different than what I could do back when I was an athlete, even on the national team. And so, you know, maybe you know, I'm just kind of thinking this, you know, outside of you know, out loud right now, you know, maybe all this specific strength and the focus on double pulling and the V2ing and whatnot is making our athletes specific strength stronger and um and uh, yeah yeah that's you know that's probably it contributes a lot to it it seems like that to me like starting earlier with a with a more specific not necessarily shutting out other sports i'm not talking about that but, yeah. but the ski training you are doing is more productive as compared to you know i don't know pulling an extra genie for an hour yeah that's not as as good as that was at the time that's not going to get you V2ing up uh, Hermolds like I saw Gus Shoemaker do the other day with my jaw dropping. I mean, you know, without even trying, you know, sure. I mean, 
yeah. that's a whole different level of strength that you have to train for. Yeah. And you have to have the coordination. I yeah. just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. And I and I do think too, it's um it's implementing our strength better too. I mean it's it's a it's a much you know, double pulling and um and V twoing, it's just it everything happens more, you know, you know, ninety percent of it happens right when you put the poles in. Where, you know, back when we were skiing, it was just this long, drawn out, you yeah. know, we're trying to muscle it through. So I think we've our athletes today have learned to implement their strength more effectively than, you know, like we did back then. Technique has changed tremendously. The, the range of motion is much more compact. Yep. The body's in a, in a power application position most of the time. Yeah, yeah there's a whole lot of differences there. Yep. Hey, yeah. um, I have to ask you this as well, because of uh, our past, what are your thoughts on today's juniors and seniors doing so well internationally? I mean, our juniors are, if you look at the last two years at World Junior Results, we're pretty much the top team in the in the world. Yeah. It's it's so euphoric as far as I'm concerned. It's so exciting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, no, I mean it's uh no, I, I think yeah, I, I think the success yeah, the success is great. I mean it's it's so uh, especially, you know, for us, you know, I mean how many times were you asked about like you're gonna win a medal or you know, like Bill Coke, you know, this just just I just felt like that was hanging over our career, our entire career, you know, and even, you know, and you only ask that, you know, when the Olympics are coming up or when you're training for the Olympics, it's just, you know, you're going to win the medal, you're going to win the medal. And I, I remember it, it got to me as an athlete and, you know, you know, in my mind is like, yeah, I'd like to, but you know, probably not, you know, it's just, so, you know, you know, watching, you know, this may be going off a different tangent, but watching, you know, Jesse and then Keegan win that medal was like, that was so inspiring to me. And, and it was almost like it, I, I, I got emotional because of the fact that for my whole life, I just dealt with, are you going to win a medal? Are you going to win a medal? Just like, just hearing that over and over again. And just, just to watch them actually win the medal was, you know, was, was incredibly inspiring and motivation. I think, I think that that has to be helping our juniors um, today and, 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 seeing our own country doing that it's just it's motivating and it helps light a spark to know that we can do it more and um in the 2000s i was in europe at an international meeting it was a product development meeting in switzerland and there were a bunch of countries there and the the talk came about the this was in the spring and there were some world cups not too long ago that had happened and it came up in conversation and i made i made a comment and someone turned to me and said, do the Americans have a team? And they were actually asking if we had a Nordic team that competed in the World Cups. And at the time, Keegan Randall and Chris Freeman were doing really well. And I was so pissed, you know? And so I, and, you know, I had to deal with all that myself as well, like you're talking about. But, but even post that, it just pissed me off to no end. And to now to see us kind of shoving it in their faces and competing and and loving every minute of it and doing it kind of the American way, it makes me feel as good as it makes you feel, you know, euphoric and excited. And yeah, I'm like so excited about it. It, it. it is. I mean, I'm not part of that scene, the international scene, you know, obviously I, you know, I, I was part of Ben's, you know, you know, he was at UVM and got that medal. So it's, uh, um, but yeah, but just, like, I, yeah, I'm happy for the coaches and the athletes, you know, just cause I know how much we, struggled and how much we got excited for our 29th finish in the world cup and that was a that was a victory and huge deal 
huge. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. now to see, you know, they're disappointed when they don't get three in the top 10 on the women's side. It's just like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 So here's another completely out of the left field question, but I just want to comment on you and I came out of Massachusetts, not a ski region by any means. And our lives have been basically dedicated to skiing and skiing has given us back in a great way. So both of us have dedicated our lives to skiing. And what is skiing given back to both of us? Family. Both of us met our wives through skiing. You, you met Corinne through skiing. Obviously, he was a ski racer. Yeah. Um, health. You know, we're, we're healthy and fit and, you know, vibrant. Great jobs. Both of us love what we do. And, you know, obviously very skiing related. Yeah. A love for the outdoors, et cetera. I mean, I'm super grateful. And it's just interesting to, con to kind of connect with you and think about two mass holes, you know, 40 years later, here we are both just loving every minute of the ski, our ski lives and everything that, you know, our it's given our families and our health and, and everything. So I just sure. thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, oftentimes I wake up and, you know, I'm 50 years old and I'm wondering when I'm going to have to go to work, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, my job is, is, does have its difficulties and challenges and, you know, there's some days that you know, I'd rather stay home, but, but for the most part, you know, I'm, I, I still feel like I don't have a real job yet, you know, and, and, you know, you know, there's some days I get to go skiing for two hours, you know, it's like, that's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I do feel very, very fortunate to be able to still do what I love to do and be able to support my family. I'm probably not going to be the richest guy when I, when I leave, but um, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty rich in a lot of experiences and, and rich in being able to do what I love to do. So it's, yeah, absolutely. Very, very fortunate. Yeah. I feel the same way. So let's get to coaching here. I know you're a keep it simple kind of basics kind of person in general. Mm -hmm. um, but are there any principles as a coach that you try to focus on that might be a little different from the norm in terms of your prioritization or methods? Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely you, you, you hit <laughs> nail on the head as far as being simple. Like, you know, sometimes when people ask about my program, what's so special about our program? And Sometimes I say, well, the most special thing about our program, it's nothing special. I mean, it's, it's just, it is very simple. And I try to keep it, I try to keep it simple because it's, you know, it's basically just, you know, being smart about your training and training hard and having fun doing it. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's what I try to instill in the team. Um, I think another thing that I really do try to focus on is team. Um, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I, you know, when you when you do ski for a university you're part of a greater um uh thing than just yourself you know you, you ski for the team you're skiing for the alpine team you're skiing for the university of vermont you know or, or wherever college you're at um and i really do try to to, to stress and, and really make that a big part of the process and and i always tell the the team that it's the um it's the team that's going to help make the individuals faster and not the individuals that make the team faster and I really try to get them to to buy into that, and um, you know, I and you know, I and I can't always create this environment, but if I can create an environment where the team wants to work hard without me there, then I've done my job, and and I think we've been fairly successful with that many of the years that I've been here. Um, you know, sometimes it's more of a challenge than not, but but when I can see the motivation and I can see them motivating themselves. And, and, and when I have to do little, then I feel like I've been successful as a coach because 
Um, that's, that's often hard. The hardest thing to do for coaching is to coach motivation. And, and so that's, you know, instead of trying to instill it in the individuals, I do try to instill it in the environment and let the environment take over and motivate the individual. So, um, yeah, I mean, some years work better than others. And, um, and, and I, and I, I, there's no special, you know, formula that I kind of instill. It's just, you know, every year is a different year and, um, you always, you're always dealing with different individuals on the team. So you're, you always have different challenges to try to get people to buy in and, and yeah, but it's a, yeah, that's. I think that instilling a fun, but competitive, hardworking environment has been, I think one of the things that separates Stratton and Sun Valley junior programs from the rest of the country, they've got the numbers and the culture to kind of support that. So people yeah. are working their tails off, but not realizing it and they're having a blast and sure. they don't need any motivation because they're, they're like a greyhound chasing a rabbit already, you know, um, yeah. it's, it's yeah. natural, you know. Yeah. yeah, some of the nicer compliments that I enjoy anyway when I do get a compliment is when people come up and say, wow, it looks like your team's having a lot of fun out there. And, you know, even a race that we might have won, you know, they're coming up and say, wow, you really, what a great bunch, what a great group of kids you have there, our team, you know, they just, they, they look like they're enjoying themselves. And, yeah, I, I really do, you know, I, when I get that compliment, I feel like I've done something right with the group, or at least help. I'm going to ask you for an example of with, when you focus, like your focus for the most part is obviously having fun and so on, but going back to our, the original question and answer is on keeping things simple. Yeah. I would like to have an example of that from you to just to use. And I want to suggest one while you think. Yeah. One of the things that I, I think is a common mistake is when, a, when an athlete, especially in, let's say, October, November, December, try for too much. Like you try for the A++ result in training which gets you sick or overtrained as compared to trying for a b plus kind of a thing you know where you're not necessarily too stressed or strained and oftentimes the result's better because you're not you're not going for that last one percent which oftentimes is super risky but what i imagine you agree with that but can you give me an example or two of of how you think of in terms of keeping things simple and and going for the basics um i mean I I think one advantage that we have being at school, I mean, there's plenty of disadvantages, like with, you know, your, the schedule and whatnot, you know, being in, in, you know, the, the lack of recovery that you might not get because of school. But, but the one advantage that you do have is you do have something else to focus on to other than just training. Um, but with that being said, you know, we are very busy with our schedules with training class, homework. So, you know, these athletes have a lot going on. So, you know, when I say, you know, keeping it simple, it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I, with, with the athlete, they, they, they just have a lot going on with their lives. So like, you know, for our training, I just, you know, I just don't, I don't try to overthink it or, you know, try to change things too much. You know, we have a system that really works for us and, you know, oftentimes when we do change things, we're just like, yeah, I think we liked our old way better. And, and not that we're just stuck in the mud and we do the same things all the time, but it's just, you know, it's, it's just simple. It's just like when it's interval days, you go hard and it's when it's re easy days, you go easy. And, and, you know, we're going to do our strength a couple times a week and, you know, we're not going to try to come up with this magical interval workout that's going to make us all fast and, 
you know, peak us for a certain race because I just learned that those it doesn't really work like that. It's uh, it's just um, and keeping it simple too is just trying to enjoy the process. You know, you know, you're not going to remember too many races 20 years later, but you're going to remember the van rides or the fall camp or the you know the 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 running workout that you did in the pouring rain with your teammates or whatnot. So it's a uh, you know keeping it simple, just keeping it you know focusing on the process and 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 doing what you're enjoying to do. I don't know if that makes sense or. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> so this is a related question. What is the thing that is the hardest or the biggest challenge for you as a college ski coach? Um, I mean, like I said, one, one of the benefits of our athletes going to school is like they have something else to think about other than just training, which sometimes can lead, you know, which, which can be problematic for some athletes, but um. But with also that being said, you know, if you, if you scroll Facebook or Instagram right now, you know, I know that Gus Schumacher had a time trial. I know that GMBS is out skiing in Crested Butte. I know that APU had corduroy skiing right now. We had roller skiing this morning. So, you know, probably when you, in the rain. What? <laughs> probably you know, in the rain. It was unseasonably warm. <laughs> but, so, I mean, that that is a challenge. Like when you're going to school, you are um, – you have to make your training plan around the academic schedule. And, um, and if you don't, if you try to fight that, you're, it's not going to work. So you have to utilize what is offered and what's in front of you and make the best of what's in front of you. If you're constantly looking and being, Oh my gosh, this person's skiing. Oh my gosh, this, you know, look at the snow out there. Um, and wanting to be there, that's not going to work for you here. So, and that's a challenge. I mean, I would love to be skiing right now, but you know, it's, 60 degrees and sunny right here in Vermont and that's not going to happen tomorrow. So, um, so that is a challenge and it's trying to teach the athletes that, you know, you don't have to be doing exactly what your competitors are doing. You know, once the snow falls and once we get on snow and once we start racing, it's not going to matter. You know, I know that we had a great workout this morning and they're getting fitter because of it. And once the snow falls and once we get racing, we're all going to be in the same boat. So, but you know, you have to, you have to instill the confidence in the athletes year in and year out that, Hey, you know, you chose to go to school. Let's make, let's, let's make the most of this and not worry about what others are doing and what others can do because maybe they're not going to school or they chose another school or whatnot. So it's a, that, that, I would say that's a, that's a challenge. But with that being said, I think we've done it quite well to work through that challenge to help, you know, produce very fast athletes. So that's to me, that's something that I've always um, believed in is in November, oftentimes you have that transition period and people oftentimes look for snow. If, if you're a junior coach or something and you're looking to have some fun, that's great. But if you're in a serious program with some serious goals, I think oftentimes you do that at the expense of the quality of your workouts and really? if, you, yep. if you leave the, the crappy golf course, you know, two inches of sliding around and crummy grooming kind of, you leave that alone and stick to the treadmill, the roller skis, strength, you know, specific stuff and keep the, the quality super high. I think yep. there's much more benefit to that, even though you might be giving up some of the fun factor yep. in this transition yeah. season. Yeah, no, I mean, just, you know, being from Massachusetts and not having great snow all the time, you know, I, I would always go home over the holiday break, even when I was skiing professionally. And oftentimes we didn't have snow. 
and I had the option of hopping in the car for an hour and going drive or driving up to prospecting and go ski for two hours and drive an hour back. Or I could roller ski out my door and roller ski for two hours, get a great workout. And the whole workout would take two hours as opposed to four and a half or five hours. And um, I mean, that was one thing that I learned as an athlete. It just, I mean, your heart doesn't know, your heart's going to get the same workout, whether you're skiing on snow or whether you're roller skiing. And, you know, it's, and it's just your mind telling your heart that it's okay, that, Hey, you're going to get a good workout. It might not be as fun, but it might be a lot more productive and give you a lot more recovery time, you know, roller skiing as opposed to, to skiing. And yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right in November, some of those, early season skis. I mean, those are just, those are for motivation and seeing snow and sliding around, you know, oftentimes we're training worse, you know, you know, when we're, when we're going out there and doing that. And, um, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting to watch some of the athletes to evolve with that. You know, sometimes we'll drive up to the notch, which is in snow. They get early season snow. Um, you know, some of the younger, you know, they're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. You know, they don't care. It's going to be two hours in the van just to get an hour and a half to ski. Some of the older mature athletes are just like, yeah, maybe I'll just roller ski here. And, you know, two, you know, in two hours, I'll get a two hour workout. I'll be done. And, and, uh, and it, it is fun to kind of see that the mentality change and, and yeah, it's a, you know, and, but you know, every year is different. And, you know, if you have a really low snow year and there is snow there, then, then that can be very, beneficial to make the effort to get on snow and some years it's not as beneficial so here's another example that that um i think you might find interesting back in the day i, I went to dockstein glacier in austria nine times one year twice maybe even two years twice but a number of years and i decided going into 92 that um so the summer of 91 i decided not to go even though i had a free trip to go because I found it was counterproductive. It was a lot of fun and I got a lot of great training in, but I usually overtrained and I trained too hard at altitude and the travel. And so I actually passed up a, a trip to go to Dachstein that was paid for. And I also was invited to two trips to go down to Bariloche for on snow training the two years subsequently. And I turned both of them down. And I think it was a good thing for my skiing in those years to actually have had turned those trips down despite all the pictures of people skiing in the glaciers and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I got better, higher quality training in. And if you look this year at COVID, I've talked to a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes and everybody is saying how optimally everything is going this year because they don't have all these training camps. They got to run around to a lot, lot less um, disruption. What are you oh, thinking about that? Oh, I, I mean, I've, I've always thought that we travel too much in the summer and we, and we, you know, you know, for like, for APU, who has Eagle Glacier, I mean, that's perfect for them. There's no travel. They can get on the snow, snow as much as possible. You know, I went up to, you know, I went up there, you know, a couple times in my ski career. It takes a lot of effort to get up there. And there's no, I mean, yeah, we got on snow and, and, you know, it was, you know, good to be sliding around. And, but I mean, anyway, you know, it was two flights is, you know, there's the travel, there's different time zone. It's just, you know, it's a, um, yeah, it takes a lot of effort to get on snow. I, you know, I think when the U.S. ski team goes down to New Zealand, you know, they're doing it right. They go down there for a long period of time and where they can get established and, and actually train effectively being recovered from the travel. And, but, you know, you know, hopping over just to go skiing for a week, you know, I, you know for juniors, for someone that's new to it, yeah, it, it's, it's motivating and it's 
showing them something different. But, you know, if, if your job is just to train and try to train as well as possible, sometimes traveling is not what you need to be doing. And um, I do, yeah. I mean, even, if, you know, a lot of our athletes who will travel places in the summer to go train for the whole summer. And then they ask, hey, there's a camp in Park City. Should I go? Like, I always give them, I, I try to weigh, you know, what are the benefits and what are the, you know, you know, you've traveled all the way out to Oregon to be there for three months or two months. Do you really want to travel again just to go to, a, you know, to a, to a camp when you can train just as well as where you are? And, and That brings the question, what are you doing in Oregon then? What are they, what, why are they doing it in Oregon? It brings the question, well, what are you doing in Oregon then if you need to go to Park City to get some competitive training environment and et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. why don't you just go to Park City then and blow off Oregon? You know, like if that's. Yeah, yeah, no, for pick, sure. Pick a, yeah. pick a spot, man, you know. And go, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, um, but. Um, we, I used to go to Dockstein for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And I would say if I were to look back and do it again, as enjoyable as it was, because it was a blast, it was beautiful. And it went nine times, you know, over like seven years or so. Yeah. I, the reality is the three weeks just meant I get that much more in the hole because I would overtrain. I would train too hard in the glaciers up at 10,000 feet. I would train yeah. too hard. I wasn't fit enough. Honestly, I wasn't fit enough to train on that glacier. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. very, very few people are actually. And I didn't have the discipline. You know, either you're going to kill your technique and you're going to ski slow enough that it's fine, or you're going to go too hard and you're going to bury yourself the next two months. Yeah. And then of course, when you're there in the afternoon, you're doing workouts either up in the glacier again or down in the valley, you know, doing running or, or roller skiing or strength workouts. And, but oftentimes we would go to the glacier twice a day. It was yeah. a death sentence, man. It would put you in the hole and you're up there thinking, man, I'm killing it. I'm training so well. I'm killing it. I'm going to kill it this year. Yeah. And then you go home and you do time trials and you're, you're like a minute to two minutes slower. And then you're yeah. like, well, I'm just going to, I just need to absorb my training. And it takes you like two months to get back to where you were before you went to the darn glacier. And I finally said enough of that, even though I love going over there and it was all paid for never yeah. again, man. It was terrible for me. Yeah. No, like I said, I think a lot of it's good for the experience. Yeah. And then once you have the experience, you, you need to learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it wasn't a surprise when I went in 92, made the 92 Olympic team that year. I said, I'm not going, even though everyone's going and it's paid for because I really want to make the team no screwing around, you know, it's on me. So. Yeah. But that has a lot to do with your keep it simple and, sure. you know, stick to the basics and, yeah. and, um, and the yeah. reducing travel. So before we started this interview, you and I were talking a little bit about communication and one of the challenges you have noticed when communicating with a far younger generation than ours. Can you t elaborate on that, please? Uh, yeah, well, I guess when you ask me what's the biggest challenge, that's probably one of the bigger challenges is, uh, is the communicating with the younger generation. Um, I'm certainly not getting any younger and these cell phones and iPads and tablets are not getting any easier for me to use. Um, but it is, uh, I guess it's an interesting challenge. You know, it's a, uh, you know, when I was in college, there was no email or whatnot. It was uh, you went to the coach's door and looked on the, his door to see like what the workout was for Monday. And, and now it's a, uh, you know, it can be spread through email or your own website or, or, you know, group me or WhatsApp or whatnot. It's a, uh, um, but it's, um, it's a, uh, it, it is a challenge to, to figure out how the younger generation communicates. Cause it's, you know, they're not, they're not just emailing anymore. They're, you know, it's the texting or Snapchat or TikTok or um, Instagram. And it's, um, um, 
just to, you know, just to try to learn, you know, how they do communicate and, and a lot of them communicate differently too, you know, so you, so I, I, I am coming a master of a lot of those different uh, social media platforms to try to you know, get them to communicate and answer emails or just answer questions. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, I guess it is a fun challenge. I mean, it does, does keep me younger and does keep me more technical. Actually, I, I, I rely on my assistant coach, Perry Thomas, to, to get me through um, all, you know, most of that stuff. Uh, yeah. So, so here's a question. You're the boss. Yeah. These are athletes that are skiing at UVM. You're the head coach. And, and, and I would say all of them or most of them are on scholarship. So, I mean, you know, you're in charge here. Is there a, a principal thing that you also wrestle with? Like you could, if you want to communicate with each one individually in the mode of communication that they prefer to use the most, you know, yeah. one, one via Instagram DM, one would be a, you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, in terms of principle, like, I don't know, I'd be tempted, I'd be tempted to be like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to send you an email. You have to have an email address to survive. You have to have an email address to create an account with a lot of these servers even. Yeah. Well, these, these, these modes of communication, is that something you wrestle with just the principle, the whole thing? Yeah, it is. And that's, you know, that's one of our, our kind of our team rules is when the coaches ask for something, we expect an answer, you know, within, you know, 24 hours. And if you can't answer it, at least respond saying, Hey, I'll get to it. And, um, and occasionally I'll ask for something or need something and no one will respond. And, you know, I'll jokingly, We'll send them an email saying, "Hey, in the real world, if this happened at one of your jobs, you'd probably be fired." You know, so let's like, you know, this let's let, let's figure this out. And I think they get a kick out of that when they when they sit back and they realize that, yeah, geez, like we do need to communicate a little bit better and and figure this out because uh, you know it isn't the real world, but you know it, it's it's the start of the real world for sure. It's really a, a crazy problem to have. Like 20 years ago, I don't think anyone would ever yeah. dream that this would be an issue for a, a leading college ski coach. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Like I say, it was. Uh, I think we did the pyramid call. You know, like you know, one person, you know, the coach would call the captain, and he would call. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how we did it. I don't know. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. So. Okay, well, here's a here's a question that might be kind of deep, but it's looking back at your ski racing career. Is there anything that you would do differently? Were you to do it again? Is there something you think you did particularly well? You know, either whatever aspect you want to take on that. Um, looking back at it, you know, I, I personally, I probably wasn't the most talented athlete out there. I was a person who was very, very driven and um, worked really, really hard um, and really could hurt myself in a race to get things done. Um, and, and with that being said, you know, I also, I, I trained a lot too, you know, maybe not at the same level as some of these national team athletes are now, but, you know, I mean, I trained 800 to 850, you know, for a number of years. And, and, and when I trained, it was, you know, it wasn't much biking or kayaking or whatnot. That was like, you know, roller, roller skiing, running, skiing. So it was, it was very specific training, you know, and looking back for my capacity I probably trained too much um you know I probably got myself very very fit and you know with the amount of training that I did but it probably um suppressed my top end speed um more than it should have 
And, you know, and I think one of the successes that I had, you know, towards the end of my career and 2002 being a good example was I, I did decide to um, cut my hours way back. You know, I went back down to like 600 hours and I just felt that, you know, for a number of years, I was just, I was tired all the time. You know, when I went to do an interval workout, I dreaded intervals because it just hurt so much. And, you know, I didn't know why. And, and I, I do think I was just, I was suppressed. And, you know, like I say, I was fit, but I just didn't have that top end speed. And, and when I started to back off my hours a little bit and, and just be more rested, I was amazed at how much, how much better I felt or how much more motivated I was for interval workouts or, or for races, you know, I didn't dread the pain that I was going to feel in a race. And, um, and, you know, so I think I did that really well towards the end of my career, but I wish I had um, figured that out sooner in my career and, and, and tried to manipulate my plans a little bit more and not just be focused on more and more and more all the time and, and just maybe focus more on quality and, you know, and learn how to, like I could barely get out of my own way in the beginning of the year, like in November. And it was just, I was embarrassed by my results. And then February and March and particularly March came around and all of a sudden I just felt, I started feeling great. And it was because my training went down and, you know, it was just more quality. And, you know, if I had, if I had figured that out earlier, I think I would have been, you know, I probably would have been a happier athlete, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, cool. Um, yeah. So, I don't know how long you've been using Toco gloves. You used them for very many years, and then I'm not sure for a while. And but I, I think you're familiar with them. And um, I'd like to ask you, as a coach and as an athlete, as you know, I'm the glove designer. What is your favorite Toco glove model, and why? Uh, as the older I get, I probably lean more towards the, uh, the like the Arctic mid and whatnot. Um, oh. But but. Uh, um, I mean, that's just the coaching side of me, but um, I'll, I'll always go to the Profi. Like, I, I really like a, um, a tight-fitting glove, and I, I like to feel my pole when I, when I ski. So, um, like, no pun intended, the, the, the Profi fits like a glove. I mean, just, uh, it's just, uh, you know, you, and obviously on the coldest days, you're probably not going to go to that glove, but, you know, it's a, I have good circulation, so – you know, I can use a, a thin glove when it does get pretty cold. And, um, you know, if I'm just going to go out and ski for two hours and not stop, like the Profi is definitely my choice. Wow. Yeah. The Profi's got a different feel than all the other gloves. Um, it's got that elastic mesh between the fingers, which grabs your fingers. Mm -hmm. The Classic has got a different cuff, but the material in the back of the hand is identical and the palm is identical. The main difference is it's got a box finger construction, but it's got a wind blocker between the fingers, yep. uninsulated, whereas the Profi's got that elastic mesh between the fingers that grabs the fingers. Yeah. You like the fit of the Profi better, the feel of the Profi better than the Classic because of that grab, you know, that batting glove type feel? I do, yeah. You know, with that being said, I, the Classic is probably the glove that I use the most just because it is a little bit, you know, a little bit warmer, um, or I feel it's a little bit warmer. Um, but the... Um, Whenever, whenever I put the Profi on, I'm just like, oh yeah, here we go. That's, that's the way it should feel. And, and I had a, when I was racing, I, I always had a pet, I always had a pet peeve of like, if my gloves were slipping off or whatever, when I was, I just, I just never liked that feeling. So like, it's a, a nice tight fitting glove is like, yeah, what I like best for sure. 
I would say for sure, whenever I put the profies on, I feel like I'm doing a race. You know, like yeah. the goal is a race. Like it, it, somehow it sends a different message, the way they feel in the hand. It's, it's a whole different feel. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. I mean, it's like putting on your race suit. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, exactly. Race suit for the hand. So, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Here's the question What do you know now? And this might not be ski related, but whatever you want to talk about. What do you know now that you wish that you had known when you were 18? Not to sit out in the sun so much. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I go to the dermatologist a lot now. So, like, and I sat out in the sun a lot when I was 18. So, yeah. So, what do you go to the dermatologist? Were you getting stuff burned off or what's going on? Oh, no. I mean, just, I mean, I have a family history of, Oh. like skin cancer so it's just like and yeah it's I, I spent a lot of a lot of time in the sun when i was 18 and um whenever i see my guys or you know the women skiing and jog bras are just nothing i'm just like ah like put your sunscreen on but that's that's the old side of me <laughs> yeah. so i go to the dermatologist once a year and i get the full body check you know looking yeah. at the, the moles and whatnot and i feel like if, if i do that once a year then i can avoid catastrophe without knowing it you know yeah well yeah yeah i was blonde haired and fair skinned so i was more prone to it so yeah. sure yeah but that's an important point i mean for example we all remember and love peter hale yeah yeah he, he died from uh, skin cancer melanoma yeah no it's uh yeah so yeah but. and if you you know you play around in the sun you definitely need to to when you get to a certain age at least visit the dermatologist yeah. on a regular basis because there is yeah. a price to pay Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and another thing, maybe more ski relating is, uh, is I, I, you know, I think I did a good job of it when I was, you know, all through my ski career, but, you know, setting goals that are realistic for yourself. So, you know, you're setting a goal that, you know, you know, you're going to, if you set that, you're going to be motivated and, and, and know that you're getting better, but also don't set goals that are just so unattainable that you're always going to be disappointed. And, um, you know, I wish I, had more confidence then in the goals that I set that they were good goals that they're good goals for me and and less being less concerned about what other people's goals were you know I think that yeah yeah just I like that yeah so okay what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out um so the the mentor that I mentioned earlier, um, George Derry, was also a boss of mine. I used to work for, with him too. And he always used to say, if you want to get a job done fast, um, ask a lazy man. And when I worked with him, he always used to call me the laziest guy around. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as, as much as I've achieved in my life and, and, and whatnot, um, um, I like to get jobs done fast because I'm probably lazy. So yeah, so it's uh, um, yeah. Maybe people don't realize that maybe I'm lazier than I am, but uh, um, I work hard because I like my recovery and rest time. So that's a cool. I, I think that's a something that a lot of people can identify with. I mean, that's I like to be efficient too, out of principle. But you know, the more efficient you are, the more time you have to waste on how you want to waste it. You know. Yeah, yeah, and whether it's laziness or just something else, whatever. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Here's the last question for you. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Do something you enjoy. 
you want me to explain, I'll go. But yeah, I would say yeah, do something you enjoy. It's a uh, um, yeah. There's a. Uh, I think a lot of people in today's world are forced to do something that they don't really want to do and end up not being very happy. And and as we spoke earlier, um, you know about where we are in our lives and doing something that we we like to do. Um, you know, I think that's probably the nicest thing about our jobs or our choices that we've made is we found something that we like to do. And um, I think we're happier people because of it. I agree. Yeah. Someone told me a long time ago to, to develop a lot of hobbies, like as a young, young man, develop mm -hmm. a lot of hobbies. And if you're lucky, one of those hobbies will turn into your career. Yeah. And I, I, that's what happened with us, thankfully. And, yeah. I, and it's something I'm, I'm, I do as a habit, which is, I don't know, I, I just like doing, I'm curious. In rural United States, probably anywhere, but especially in rural United States, people are very creative as to how they support their families. And I'll drive through, you know, towns outside of Burley, Idaho on the way to Ketchum, for example, for an event. And I'll drive the back way or whatever. And I'm running to these houses in the middle of nowhere thinking, what do they do for a living? Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking that. And in my hometown here, not my hometown, but where I lived for the last 25 years, I also have the same kind of experience where you get to know someone and there's some really interesting, creative ways that people make a living. And very few of them around here anyway, out in the country, are the, the traditional, I go into college, I studied a certain thing, and then I end up doing that for my career. You know, that's very non-traditional, as traditional as it sounds. Sure. So many people end up doing things that are totally creative and with that in mind it seems like it that you ought to be able to find something that you like because yeah, there's so I mean, many non-traditional paths sure yeah i mean and, and when i say that I, I i don't take that for granted either i feel very fortunate to be able to do th something i enjoy and i know there's a lot of people that can't do something that they enjoy they just yeah, they're they're making ends meet just because that's their only choice or yeah, option yeah. yeah so it's um um, but you know, it's, I think it's something to strive for and, and not, you know, not just go for the dollar sign or whatever, you know, it's, uh, um, trying to find something that you, you really enjoy doing and, um, it's, it's going to make you happier in life and whether you can be lucky enough to have that opportunity to do it is, you know, you know, that's going to, might take some luck or, or, or whatnot, or, you know, be, you know, you might be one of the more fortunate ones, but, uh. Um, yeah, if you, if you strive for it, that's a start. You know, if you look at families, oftentimes the oldest child is the one that takes a safe route, goes to college, studies a, a particular trade or thing, and then goes into it and, you know, has a career established early and so on. And then you get to the fourth kid, let's say, and they take forever and end up doing something that's totally creative and different, you know, and more of a passion. I think that's something that as a father of two children, I was kind of, I wanted to make sure that my kids knew that for me, a huge skill is learning how to live cheap. Like you don't need to be rich. You don't need to be have a fear of being poor. If you yeah. know how to live in a strict budget and you know how to live cheap, then you yeah. don't have to have a fear of that. You don't have to get things, you know, moving forward. You don't have no pressure. And, and, and then you can take your time and find something you really love. And so sure. I, was, I was constantly pounding that message home. And my older daughter um, has turned into a sales machine She's been working for GoDaddy for years and doing really, really well. And yeah. because of this, she's been able to work up some money. Yeah. Some, some uh, you know, a savings account. 
Sure. And every time I talk to her now, so what do you think you might be doing in a year or two? She comes out with the craziest things, which make me feel really good because she's not, you know, in the rat race that where you're on that treadmill and you can't get off or you're screwed because you're going to miss a payment. And yeah. the other day she said, well, well, you know, those people that are up on skyscrapers and those scaffoldings. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I want to do that. I'm like, you talking about a window washer? And she's like, yeah, I want to be a window washer. And then another day she said, I want to be a custom sofa upholstery specialist. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, and then just the other day, the last time we talked, she said, I want to work in a bike shop and be a bike mechanic. <laughs> I was like, no kidding. I just yeah. love the fact that she doesn't feel that pressure because she's been able, I mean, they're, they're totally on their own. Yeah. No one's, no one's helping them out, but they put in their dues and they know how to live cheap. And, yeah. um, and that, that is a really important life skill, I think, is to be able to live cheap so you don't have that pressure. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, to, hard to do. I mean, yeah. Well, when you have a house and a bunch of kids, it's hard to do. Yeah. yeah but no, when you're, you know, yeah. back, in the, my, my, back in my day, I spent zero money and I earned zero money when I was a full-time athlete. You know, I was, I didn't spend a dime and I didn't earn a dime, you know. I, then I was in the military, and, but it, I still didn't earn a dime hardly. And, and my daughter's gotten really good at that. And I know you were really good at that for, for many years, you know. Yeah. Now it's hard. You know, no, to be a citizen in society, you know. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. It's hard, like raising your child saying, no, you're not going to get the iPhone when the neighbor, you know, the neighbor's 10-year-old has got the iPhone. It's, just, it's, it's, a hard, uh, it's a hard thing to battle as a parent, and I can see it's a hard thing to battle as a 10-year-old, too, like wanting things that your neighbor has. And, yeah, so it's, it's a it's – a, yeah, I, like you say, I, I try to do the same thing. I, I try to instill, you know, appreciating smaller things in life and not just being happy because you're getting something material. So. I mean, if you can't live super cheap and on the absolute basics between 18 and 25, well, how the heck are you going to manage it when you're 40? You're screwed, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, those are some really important life lessons, you know, I, I call it circling the wagons. Once in a while, things get really tight. I'm like, we got to circle the wagons. Turn everything off. We're going to, you know, play cards in the evening or whatever and, and just go back to basics and, and enjoy simple pleasures. Sure, yeah. That's an important skill as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Being bored is important. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I just really, love to appreciate being bored. You know? The reality is simple pleasures are the sweetest pleasures in general. And we occupy ourselves with so many things that actually – take our ability away to enjoy those simple pleasures. Yeah. Like, I mean, like time with loved ones, sunsets. This right here. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, like, cool. Um, it's been my pleasure to talk with you today, both as your time as an elite athlete, as well as as, a, as the current head coach of the University of Vermont ski team. You've had a, a perspective on everything we've talked about, you know, the breadth of, of experience that has been pretty unique and has been a pleasure for me. And I'm sure the American ski public, when they listen to this, will be inspired by our conversation today. So uh, thank you for your longtime friendship. And, um, and I've known you for a long time. I think I understand you better than many because we've come from kind of similar necks. Of the woods. Yeah, so, no, yeah. no. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's, yeah, it's been, been fun to catch up and just talk about skiing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I hope to see you around. I don't know when that be in this COVID area, but um, so hope to see you around soon and, and keep in touch, please. Sounds good. Thanks, Ian. Okay. Thanks, Pat.